Well, they are back in the news. And if you think that we have been talking about them for years, you're not wrong. Because once again, we're hearing that the Canadian government is moving towards purchasing Lockheed Martin F-35 fighter jets. This came from the procurement minister yesterday. So let's find out more about what is going on. Joining us now is Amanda Connolly, our Global News National Online Journalist. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. I I feel like I'm having deja vu with this. We have a long history of talking about buying these jets, don't we? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, it it is a process that has been in in varying degrees of the works for roughly 20 years now. Again, people will likely remember that the, the former Conservative government announced back in 2010 that they wanted to buy these jets. But of course, the the work had actually been underway for a number of years before that, dating back to the late 1990s. And so it's been quite a long road uh, for the government to get to this point. Uh, Most recently, the government had launched a full competition back in 2017 after vowing in 2015 that they would not buy the F-35. So it really has kind of come full circle in a way. And again, a lot of questions for them about whether the contest was worth it to get to the same results. Okay, so what are we hearing? What did we find out? So this is, again, a really interesting uh, a really interesting development because, of course, when we talk about fighter jets, it's not simply a, a conversation about, you know, the, the technicalities and the things like that. Really, at its core, um, talking about fighter jets is a conversation about how Canada sees its role in the world. And so the way, of course, that we're seeing the government talk about that, that question has certainly shifted over recent years. And that, I think, is is part of what we're seeing here when we're talking about the F-35. Um, we, we saw on in the press conference yesterday this uh, discussion about the need to kind of consider what Canada is going to be having to do going forward, that Canada is facing, as Defence Minister Anita Anand called it, a new reality, and that the, the Royal Canadian Air Force needs to be flexible and agile. That, again, of course, uh, there were a lot of questions about whether the current situation with Russia and Ukraine has weighed on this decision she was saying it's not necessarily that. This, of course, has been underway in the process in the works for a number of years at this point. But certainly we're seeing kind of, again, as she was putting it there, this broader kind of questioning and, and, and kind of concerns about um, a more dangerous world, frankly, and, and that that is kind of how this has been evaluated by the bureaucrats who were running the contest. Right. And that's another important the point that they were making yesterday, right, is that the minister, they claim that the government stayed completely out of this. Yes, and this really was, I think, a symptom of a lot of the the, the criticism levied at the former government for um, allegations of interference by politicians in the process. The former Conservative government, of course, had sole sourced that deal originally with F-35. The government saying yesterday that the procurement minister um, effectively was not even aware that Lockheed Martin was the top scoring bidder in the process until hours before the announcement was actually made. And so that is uh, quite a significant departure from, of course, how uh, a lot of procurement seems to have been done recently. It comes as the government is really in the midst of kind of overhauling Canada's procurement, uh, really problem-plagued procurement system. And so this is one of the biggest procurements that we really are going to see um, for a lot of people in in recent memory. This is multi-billion dollars. And it, you know, realistically, it, it will it could very well end up being more than what they have budgeted because of the the cost of these planes and the number of jets that the government says that they want. They want eighty eight of them. That's with a nineteen billion dollar budget. Um, a lot of questions about whether that is actually going to be feasible and whether it will be the budget or the number of planes that actually shifts to stick with the target that the government wants. Right. And how soon are we supposed to receive these? Like, when is this going to start happening? 
So uh, initial delivery is expected to start in 2025. Of course, these things come kind of on a rolling slate. So you have them uh, coming out over the course of a number of years after that initial delivery. Uh, so really, it would be a process kind of into the 20, into the 2030s, but beginning in 2025. And so, um, again, the, the F-35 here is, is a, uh, we, we have seen a number of Canada's allies taking this on and using it as well. That really is kind of part of the, the bigger backdrop here that, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had said in 2015 that fighter jets for Canada really were about continental defence. And so we didn't need the, the fancier um, F-35, kind of as, as he characterized it. That is not the case anymore. We're seeing the government put Canada's planes, uh, fighter jets, into a variety of scenarios as part of the, the NATO military alliance. Uh, most recently, of course, in Eastern Europe. But again, this, this has been kind of a growing thing that the government is doing. And so that shift in what Canada is doing and how we see our, how the government sees the country's role in the world, I think really is, is part of the really interesting backdrop against this and, and what jet best, best suits those right. needs going forward. You mentioned there, Amanda, that they are overhauling or have overhauled the procurement process. So what they did for this process, is that the way it's going to be for all big government projects now? That has certainly been kind of what they've been hinting at. Again, this has been such a massive procurement um, and there were so many problems uh, raised, uh, concerns raised about problems in the process originally that we've really seen this push by the government to kind of force um, a lack of political involvement in it. And so this really seems to be kind of the first that we're seeing with this degree of um, maybe shielding is the best word to say it for the politicians here, where, where they've kind of put this this firewall up in place to keep them out of the process um, purportedly, of course. And so this certainly is kind of an indication of what we could expect going forward. Again, the work to really overhaul that process is still underway. They have not really put out a formal plan for what that will all look like. But again, these big, expensive procurements, um, this certainly is an indication of what the government is aiming to do with these kind of things that have been so, so problem plagued for decades really in Canada. We are kind of notorious among defense circles for having a lot of difficulty in getting these things over the finish line because of how slow and and laborious the process is. Okay, and we expect the contract on this to be assigned at some point this year? Later this year really is is kind of the timeline that we're looking at. The, the, The original goal stated by the government has always been to have a contract signed in 2022. Uh, we did hear from officials yesterday that this will take like a minimum of about seven months. So very much towards the end of this year is what we are expecting. Um, always a possibility that there could be delays. We've seen delays in procurement because of the pandemic so far. Um, and of course, you never know with, with procurement. Again, it, it, it is often so problem plagued. But certainly end of this year is what they are positioning right now for a possible signing of the contract. And of course, we'll see how the negotiations go. The government right. saying there's still no guarantee that Lockheed Martin will get that contract. There are always things that can come up in the final talks. Right now, this really just means the government is moving forward, talking only with Lockheed Martin, only about the F-35. But if that falls through, they do still have the option to turn back to the other supplier that was last in the contest. All right, we'll see what happens again. Amanda, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. So this morning we're talking about real estate, the fact that the B.C. government has introduced legislation that will allow for a cooling off period, so to speak, following the purchase of a home. And this is an effort to try to protect buyers in our red hot real estate market, maybe give you uh, a chance to actually get a home inspection. 
Now, they're thinking that this might calm things down a little bit, might respond to some of the concerns in the highly competitive housing market. But will this, do you think, work? Well, let's get some different takes on this. Joining us now is Mike Bernier, the MLA for Peace River South and BC Liberal critic for housing. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Good morning. Do you think something like this would work? Well, it's really hard to say what's going to work when they really haven't said anything. And the reason why I say that is the the cooling off period bill that the government has been talking about for a long time uh, was presented in the House yesterday. It's less than one page long and it's about four bullets. And every single bullet just says uh, to be determined at a later date by cabinet and will be announced later this fall but there's no information. So it's really hard to say what, what, government, uh, what the intentions are here, especially when, uh, Simi, that we're hearing from a lot of on-the-ground uh, different professionals and stakeholders uh, who are saying, you know, the whole point was we were trying to deal with the affordability issue, and this will do absolutely nothing. In fact, uh, a lot of people are now saying, after a quick glance at this, that this might actually uh, create the opposite and make prices go up even higher. Uh, what do you think would work here? Because clearly people buying homes without getting a home inspection because they feel pressured to buy, that's that's a bad situation. Like, we have to do something about that. No, well, and 100% agree that one of the challenges right now is, again, people are making a, a massive investment, possibly more than likely the largest investment they'll ever make in their life, uh, moving into a, well, a home, and especially in places like Vancouver, where houses have gone up $600,000 uh, on average in the last five years, $2.5 million cost now for a house in Vancouver, and the bidding wars that we've seen. So obviously, there's some uh, some issues and some challenges that need to be to be addressed uh, out there. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure, though, that we're protecting the buyers, we're, we're protecting the sellers as well. Uh, and, you know, this bill, though, there's, again, the problem is there's no information. And in fact, one of the bullets even says that, you know, people have the right to pull out of the, the purchase, but then there could be a penalty to that. So now that's going to make people even more nervous. Uh, what does a penalty look like if they do back out because they decide and they change their mind? So, again, a lot of unanswered questions Uh, And this bill didn't really help give any clarity. You know, we were talking about this earlier with Vaughn Palmer, and one of the things that has been floated as well is this idea of implementing mandatory home inspections. Like you have, you know, you have to report if you buy a car, as you pointed Mm -hmm. out, that, you know, that wasn't an accident or it wasn't an accident. Why don't we do that for houses? Well, and, and, you know, I've talked to the Real Estate Association, uh, a lot of different realtors as well, and what they've told me is a lot of, um, advice they're giving now is even to the sellers just go out and spend the money get the uh, inspection done and show people when they're coming to look at your house instead of waiting for the purchaser so there are opportunities out there uh, absolutely for uh, maybe trying to clean this up to uh, to help everybody in this uh, heated market okay, okay if and, you at the end of the if you had a chance to do this what would you do well i, I do think that the um, inspections are important but we have to look at the whole the whole gamut of what's created uh, the issue here. I mean, we have a supply issue, the costs are out of control, and really people are, are struggling and panicking because of the affordability. So, you know, we need to be looking at uh, all the different options, especially listening to the experts out here. Uh, the Real Estate Association, representing tens of thousands of realtors, put out a white paper uh, as well, saying that this was the wrong approach, that they should be looking at uh, inspections, they should be looking at other things, but not necessarily just a straight uh, cooling off period that made actually uh, create the reverse effect of people putting in multiple bids, you know, and that's what we're hearing is, 
you know, if there's a cooling off period and people can back out, what's stopping an investor now or a person putting in six bids on six different homes if they can withdraw from five of them, which will create a lot of confusion and uncertainty in the market. Do you think there should be a financial penalty then? That there should be, if you're going to walk away from something, you're going to have to leave some of your deposit behind. Yeah, and, and you know, those are things that we have to obviously consider. But right now in the bill, uh, I'm looking forward to going after and challenging and questioning the, the government on this because there's no clarity. It just says that there may or may not be a penalty. Well, what does that look like? When would the penalty be enforced and under what circumstances? And those are really strong discussions we have to have. Okay, so one of the things you mentioned there is as well are supply issues. Now, we've heard the housing minister, David Eby, talk about how this fall, if things don't improve, he's talking about, you know, taking that decision away from municipalities or forcing them to open up supply. What do you think about that idea? Well, my first response to Minister Eby was, you know, they've had six years as government to to try to come up with different um solutions to the affordability issue and every time we turn around they're blaming somebody else first of it was foreigners then it was speculators now it's local government Uh, local government has a huge uh, opportunity to be part of the solution on this as well because they've got a lot in their back pockets that they deal with uh, around densification uh, around zoning and we really need to be partnering with and working with local government to ensure that uh, they're making the best decisions that's going to help this issue uh, and we are hearing you know there's some municipalities that do a great job out there of moving things forward there's others unfortunately that we hear of you know four or five six years to get a permit to build a, yeah. a, a program yeah. and that's that's unacceptable that's not going to solve the problem if local government takes that long okay so then how do we give them an incentive to move things along well, a lot of it's going to have to come down to talking with local governments and finding out why, first of all, uh, it takes them so long. I, you know, you look at Vancouver as a perfect example of the time it takes uh, to get a to get a, a permit to, to build there. So we need to find out what their issues are. It should definitely not be a capacity issue. Is it a not-in-my-backyard situation? I don't know, but we need to, we need to solve this problem because a lot of of growth is happening uh, in the lower mainland specifically. We need the housing, we need the densification, and we're going to need local government to also step up to be part of the solution for sure. Okay, so then would you consider an ideal like a mandatory home inspection? Oh, we're back, back, back on that issue. Definitely it's something that needs to be considered, Cindy, uh, because when we're looking at homes that are being purchased at you know millions of dollars like this yeah. and people are afraid of what what they may or may not be getting. I think the due diligence needs to be done for sure. I've got no issues with that. Uh, I'm making sure that people know what they're buying. As, and you made the perfect examples. Uh, that when you're buying a used car, you usually yeah. take it for an inspection. You know, is the motor going to blow up when I pull out of the, the lot? So it's definitely something that needs to be considered as well for, uh, for houses. I've got no issues with that. Uh, but again, we need to find out what the, the plans are from government because they haven't laid that out clearly. Yeah, we certainly do. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Mike Bernier, MLA for Peace River South, also the BC Liberal critic for housing. It's hard to debate this whole idea of what the government has brought forward, as he points out, because there are so many unknowns in it. One of the things that has come up is this idea, though, of perhaps putting in place some kind of mandatory home inspection. Would, would you support that idea? If you were going to sell a house, you would have to get an inspection to be able to show all potential buyers, oh, look, the home has passed inspection. I think that's a pretty good idea. What about you? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, gas prices are fluctuating a little bit, but they seem kind of stuck now, somewhere between a dollar ninety and a dollar ninety nine per liter. That is still. Incredibly high compared to where we were even a few months ago, and so I think it does mean that people are changing their habits, maybe even changing the car that they drive. So, what is the demand like right now for, say, electric vehicles or hybrid vehicles? Well, let's talk more about that. Joining us now is Olivier Vincent, who's the CEO of AutoZen. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. So, are people, do you think, ch- thinking of changing the type of vehicle that they drive these days? We we feel that indeed in the market, it's uh, it's a very interesting time where, I mean, the demand for EVs was pretty high already before the uh, the increase in pricing, but uh, it seems to be a like the the last straw, or, or we seem to have reached a threshold where you have a perfect storm, and so many people now are uh, seeing their interest for EVs going way up. I went in looking for one at a particular dealership a couple of weeks back, and they told me two years to try to get a brand new one. So what's it like out there when somebody's trying to buy a brand new one? So it's indeed a very good question. It will depend on the, the, the make, of course. And uh, it seems like right now the big winner is still Tesla. Uh, and you just have to drive around Vancouver and see the, the very large number. I hope Elon Musk will come one day to Vancouver to sell the Tesla in the city. But Tesla has done, I think, pretty well managing their supply chain uh, early in COVID, when all the manufacturers were cutting off their, cutting down their orders on on chips, you know, Tesla was already predicting growth, so they kept their supply quite high. So at the moment, it takes a lot less time to get a new Tesla than it is to get anything else. And uh, you know, they're still the dominant player in EV, and so this is really factoring big time into the the equation. I'm very excited to see all the new EVs coming out from. All the manufacturers out there, it's going to be fantastic to watch the next, I would say, couple of years. But for now, Tesla is still the big winner there. What about used vehicles? So, it, you know, it, that effect percolated down to the, to the, to the used, of course. The, uh, uh, the value of used is, uh, is now way higher than it was two years ago. And a lot of people attempted just, uh, just letting go of their old car. In the case of EV, you know, again, you've got that perfect storm right now where uh, you you have a high value of your used car, um, uh, which is usually a lot more money than you thought you had. Uh, you've got these uh, available, you know, new or newer used cars that you can get uh, in EV. And so we see a lot of people selling their older EV uh, cars and maybe four or five year old. So on, on the AutoZen platform, we've seen the number of EVs being presented for sale go up four times in the last four months. Uh, and, wow. and the trend is not going away. So, yes, the, the people just wake up one morning and realize, goodness, my, my, my older used car is worth that much. I'm going to sell it and I'm going to go for an EV. Until now, the EV price was pretty high and it, it still is. But suddenly the gap between the amount of money you're going to get back from your used and how much you're going to pay for the new is a lot lower. And so people make the jump. And uh, that, that's, uh, that's a main line we see happening every day. Okay, so that's interesting. So people are kind of cashing in because I know used vehicles right now, they're, they're getting up there in price, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. We, we think we might have hit, you know, uh, the top of the mountain here. You know, the, the prices have gone down actually a little bit in the last few weeks. Not a lot, you know, it's like 0.1%. So it's not really dramatic yet. But it looks like the regular growth we saw for used prices in the last 18 months seems to have reached, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the cap now. And, of course, we, we're hearing more and more about the, the cheap supply 
uh, not being resolved, but actually not getting deeper. And so we should expect uh, before the end of the year to see more used cars coming to the market. And, and that will sort of have a domino effect into the price of used cars, which will also come down later in the year and, of course, uh, next year as well. Okay, so you think for people out there who are thinking about getting a used vehicle, prices have stabilized? That's what we, are, that's what we think in the market. The, the prices are clearly not working, uh, growing anymore. Now, you know, I don't have a crystal ball to see what happens in three months. Everybody's right. got concern about the, the, the war in Ukraine and what could happen and, and possible, hopefully not, escalation. Uh, but, but pending no, no bad news, we think that peak we've seen in the last 12 to 18 months uh, is soon going to be over. All right, we'll see what happens. Olivier, thank you so much for your time. Of course, Amy, thank you. Appreciate that. That's Olivia Vincent, who's the CEO of AutoZen, talking about the sale of used vehicles, electric vehicles. A lot of people cashing in with the sale of their cars now, and are they considering going EV? You want to weigh in? Simi at cknw.com. Would love to hear from you. This is Mornings with Simi. How much time do we need to prepare for an earthquake? Well, it turns out every second actually matters when it comes to being able to predict whether or not an earthquake is going to happen. And the very first sensor for Canada's earthquake early warning system has now been installed. It's off our coast here, right here in BC. Let's find out more about it. Alison Bird joins us now, a seismologist and liaison and outreach officer for Natural Resources Canada. Alison, thank you for being here. Thank you. This seems like a pretty momentous thing. It is. It's, it's not quite what you described. It's not a prediction system. We're not telling you that an earthquake will happen. Um, it's a system that we can tell you that an earthquake has just happened and strong shaking is on its way. It's imminent. You need to take protective actions immediately. Okay, and I remember we've talked about this before, I know, like maybe a couple of years ago, and mm-hmm. I seem to remember that it was it was about a matter of seconds, right? That you know, yeah. hey, this is starting, and even you you said that that's, that's enough of a warning to really make a difference. It, it can make a huge difference. We're really excited about this. Even with a few seconds, you can drop covered hold on um, if you're at home. Um, you can take those protective actions um, for uh, other critical infrastructure, let's say, um, it, those seconds can trigger um, an automated response. So you can do things like open fire hall and ambulance bay doors so that those vehicles can get out, the doors don't jam shut. Um, you can set off a certain kind of alarm in a hospital so you can pause surgery and cover the patient, secure them. All these little things can make a huge difference in terms of reducing the impact of an earthquake. Okay, it's, but it's taken us a long time to get to this point, hasn't it? Well, not really. I mean... We're, we're, we're doing this system, which is, um, it's not something you just buy off the shelf and plug in and everything works. It takes some time to develop. Um, and we're doing this over the course of five years. And, and considering we're installing about 400 sensors, um, that will take a little bit of time, but it, it, it's happening uh, quite well. Okay, so we are progressing. When will this yes. be kind of online? This will be online in two years. So in 2024, we will be launching the system. It sounds as well, Alison, with the way you've described it, is it's we need more than just the system because with the system, then we need to have protocols in place so we know what to do with this system. Yes, this is a system where it, it's not just something that you can install and start sending out alerts and it magically works. We also need to do a lot of public outreach and things like this, having this opportunity to spread the word that this is going to be happening, that people need to know what to do in an earthquake so that when they do receive the alert, they do the right thing and they make themselves safer. So, uh, you know, we, we are going to be promoting uh, 
the, the earthquake early warning system on during the ShakeOut BC earthquake drill that we have every October. Um, that helps you practice what to do, uh, not just if you're at home or at work, but different actions. So, like, for instance, if you're driving, you pull over somewhere safe, you set the parking brake, maybe put on your emergency flashers and stay in the car. You know, just knowing what to do in different situations and, and practicing them when you can uh, can make a big difference into your safety when an earthquake does happen. So how are we deciding where the sensors will go? Well, it, it's, it's partly mathematical. Um, we do know that for sort of urban areas where we want a, a dense network of, of sensors, we need them to be about a 20 kilometers spacing for the system to work effectively. So uh, we'd be partnering with all sorts of different organizations who can host those sensors for us. Um, you know, other government organizations, people like BC Ferries, um, who've hosted this, the sensor at, at Horseshoe Bay and a few other of their terminals. Um, it, it's fantastic to get this sort of grid of sensors around so that they, they can pick up all the different types of earthquakes that can occur in the region. Is this a system that is in place elsewhere? Yes, um, it's been proven effective in, in other countries. And more recently in the United States, they installed it in um, California and then in Oregon and uh, Washington. Um, they, they went online last year. And, uh, you know, it, we're going to be using the same uh, software that they use in the States, which is going to not only help because it's being proven to work, but also mm-hmm. it'll help facilitate that sharing of data across the border. Yeah, can you give us an idea of how this works? Yes, uh, certainly. Uh, so an earthquake produces two main types of waves. Uh, the first is the, the P wave, the primary wave, and that's the usually the initial jolt or the rumble that you might experience. That's sort of a weaker wave. Uh, it doesn't tend to cause much damage. So what happens is th- that wave is picked up by our sensors. The data is quickly sent to the data center, processed, and an alert is sent out before the stronger S wave arrives. That's a big side-to-side motion that tends to cause most damage. And the idea is we're trying to beat these waves. So that's why you only have seconds. And unfortunately, if you're very close to the epicenter of the earthquake, um, it's, it's likely that you will receive the alert after the shaking because it's just simply not possible to get the alert to you before the, the, the strong shaking. Right. But ideally, how many seconds do you think we could get out of this? Well, this depends on how far you are from the earthquake. So the further the earthquake, the more warning time. Uh, but so, for for example, for Vancouver, for an earthquake off the coast, you could have even a minute or more. Uh, for um, closer earthquakes, you could have just a few seconds. But even those few seconds, you know, you can you can get underneath right. something that will protect you from that falling debris. Okay, so that's why I guess it's so critical to partner up with like BC Ferries, right? Because so many earthquakes happen out on the water. Exactly. So this is helping us capture those earthquakes that can occur, say, in the Georgia Strait region. Okay. And I I can tell, Alison, this is going to make a huge difference when it comes to communication, right? Because if you can tell people, we're going to give you a few seconds notice, this, you can do X, Y, Z. Do you think that message will get through to people? Because we do lack when it comes to earthquake preparedness. Well, I think we're we're improving. I've noticed a huge improvement over the years. I'm on the organizing committee for ShakeOut BC, and we've seen a huge increase in the number of people who participate in that drill. People seem to be more aware that they're living in earthquake country. I mean, it will still take a lot of public education, but uh, we are partnering with Public Safety Canada, Emergency Management BC with their Prepared BC program, and all these others to help get that word out, to spread the message. And I think it will make a, a huge difference. Um, the message will be sent out 
automatically to the public. They don't need to sign up. They don't need to pay or anything like that. It's d- done through the natural, National Public Alerting System and PASS, which, you know, you get Amber Alerts from that nowadays. So it's, it's the same type of system. So it's, it's really, I'm very excited about this. Yeah, it sounds like it. And you know what? This is going to be a big deal. Allison, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Allison Bird, seismologist, liaison and outreach officer for Natural Resources Canada, talking about this first sensor for Canada's earthquake early warning system that has now been installed. It is at the Horseshoe Bay Ferry Terminal in West Vancouver, and eventually they're going to have hundreds of these sensors. And even if it gives us seconds of notice, as Allison pointed out, that seconds of notice can still make a difference for doing small things that can help out in the aftermath of an earthquake. This is Mornings with Simi. One of the really beautiful things about this time of year, and I, I found it as a bit of a surprise recently driving around, is that the cherry blossoms are in bloom. Every year, they seem to surprise me when they start, because right now they're the very pale, pale pink ones that are starting to bloom and some of the white ones. But it's lovely to come across them when that happens. Let's talk more about the cherry blossoms right now with our Raji Sohal. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Good morning. Yeah, the cherry blossoms uh, attract huge crowds. And I've already started to notice that there's a, that that craze on social media where people, you know, of course there is. All, <laughs> yes. And it's like scrolling pink wallpaper. I know for me, they, they just tend to bloom at exactly the right time is that moment where I go, okay, enough rain, Vancouver, I need hope, <laughs> I need spring. And it's that first sight of those fluffy pink flowers in the sky that lifts my spirits and makes me go, okay, then that means that summer can't be too far off either. Well, figuring out our peak cherry blossom moment is actually good for the tourism sector here, I learned, because people who are really into them will travel to Vancouver from elsewhere in order to check them out. Um, It's also a really big deal in Kyoto, where they have a huge cherry blossom festival as well. But it's become trickier to predict when the peak bloom is going to happen because and nowadays, our winters are, are overall shorter. And I talked to Dr. Lizzie Wolkovich. She's a biologist at UBC Forestry. She had an idea with some colleagues to try to understand cherry blossom season better. And they opened up an international contest that looks at cherry blossom capitals of the world. Of course, Vancouver is one of them. Kyoto, I mentioned. Washington, D.C. is another big one. Uh, New York's not on there. But I remember that whenever I've been in New York around this time, they have gorgeous blooms as well. And I asked the biologist, uh, you know, is it easy enough to predict? She said it is and it isn't. And they had over 80 contestants uh, from four continents and they used all kinds of modeling. Um, They looked at spring warming, winter cool. Some scientists looked instead at sea ice and other environmental factors. Uh, But yes, climate change has made it harder to predict when peak cherry blossom season is. We know that they need a certain amount of winter cold and then basically a certain summation or sum of spring warming. The other thing that makes them great is that's that's the biology of lots of temperate trees. So if we could do better at predicting cherry blossoms, we could do better at predicting forest trees and modeling carbon storage and predicting climate change itself. The other thing that's tricky about it, though, is that, you know, the biology might be somewhat simple with lots of room for improvement, but you have to predict the weather. We know that most of the trees that we're measuring won't start blooming until late March or sometime in April. 
So that's a lot of weather forecasting that goes into the predictions. With continued warming, it looks like trees are slowing down how they respond to climate change. And this is a big concern because if trees don't track climate change in terms of earlier leaf out or earlier flowering, it has big implications for carbon storage and climate change itself. As the planet warms up, the growing seasons get longer. We expect that trees will leaf out earlier and that they will bud set or shut down a little later. And all of our models of climate change take into account this sort of small benefit of climate change, that as the planet warms, the growing seasons will get longer. So we hope that trees will actually take up a little bit more carbon. But if they slow down effectively and stop doing that, it has big implications for carbon storage, but also for biology, for how forests work and how ecosystems around us respond to warming. And so this has been a hot topic in climate change biology and plant biology for the last five to seven years. Yeah, and that's why the biologists wanted to open up the contest to around the world and see what data scientists will come back with from all those other cities too. But I do feel that everyone in Vancouver is kind of an amateur cherry blossom predictor already. So when do you think, Simi, is going to be the peak? Well, I think it's coming up. So right, it's just starting right now. I feel peak blossom to me is when the big, thick, pink, darker pink blossoms are hanging. I'm going to guess 10 days from now. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, they're predicting around April 2nd is when they'll hit peak. I think it's going to be a little bit after that because it's been quite wet lately. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I asked biologist Lizzie Wolkovich how adaptive the cherry blossom trees are to some of this weather. It's not a good idea if you're a tree to just respond to spring warming. If you just respond to spring warming, then, you know, a couple warm weeks in January might be when you decide to flower or leaf out. And that usually means you'll lose all of your flowers or all of your fresh leaves to a frost event. So most temperate trees have evolved additional triggers. They generally either wait for the days to be long enough so they can say, oh, the days are long enough and it's warm. It's probably spring. Or most trees, including cherries, are accumulating some sort of estimate of winter cold. So they basically are waiting for there to have been enough cool days before they would respond to a series of warm days. Okay, so So all of this, this is all a big deal, right, Raji? Because like, it's important to know when things peak. Yeah, absolutely. She had uh, talked to me extensively about the impact also on uh, just the tourism industry that people, if they're only planning to come for a couple of days for the cherry blossoms, they really want to make sure that they're there during the peak. Um, And of course, I was saying to you that, uh, you know, even influencers who make up a good part of that travel industry too, uh, they want to come for those good backdrops. But it has like this broader implication for how we understand other trees too. And I thought trees were extremely smart in a way in that they uh, would just constantly adapt and adapt and adapt. But she said that overall, what they see is this trend towards a declining sensitivity to the warming problem. So what that means for our cherry blossoms down the road, we'll have to have to wait and see. We will wait and see and be watching, of course, and taking pictures, which is what we do. Uh, Raji, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. 
We've been having a really interesting discussion this morning about the real estate market, and that's because of this new home buyer protection bill that the provincial government brought out yesterday. But there's not a lot of details in it about how it's exactly going to work. What we do know is that they're going to put in place some kind of a cooling off period for when you are buying a property, meaning you might have some time to back out. We don't know what the consequences of that, whether there'll be a financial penalty of that would be. Uh, We don't know if that means that you're going to absolutely need to have a home inspection before you buy a property or if it'll just give you time to get one. So there's obviously a lot of concerns about that and there are some critics of it. Is this actually going to be something that will help the housing and real estate market? Well, we thought. Let's check in with Thomas Davidoff, who's the director at the UBC Centre for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Good morning. Good morning. What do you think about this? Is this actually something that could help? Well, I think it might provide some protection to buyers. So most buyers, I think, go through their transaction. You know, maybe the whole process wasn't perfect. Maybe they have some regrets. But mostly, I think people are reasonably happy with their transactions. Obviously, there's the occasional disaster. And what this uh, proposal does is hopefully get rid of some of those disaster cases because you don't wake up the morning after you paid uh, what you realize is too much for the place, kick yourself and you know, really upset you can't back out except at great expense, uh, giving up your uh, whole deposit and and maybe even more than that. So this rescission or free look period will probably protect some buyers. However, if I may, I don't think this is in any way intended to be a solution to expensive uh, housing market. If anything, this will raise the price of housing because people can go into transactions with more confidence. What do you mean? Well, uh, if I know that uh, after I purchase a property, suppose I'm thinking of paying a million bucks for it, if I know that I have a week to make sure there's nothing wrong with it, then uh, I can pay a little bit more than a million bucks because I can be confident that if, if it's worth less than a million bucks, I can walk away and, you know, maybe the uh, there's no problems and it's worth more than I'm paying. So uh, the right to uh, walk away from a property that uh, you've contracted to pay for has value. And uh, giving people that right just makes properties more valuable. Unfortunately, that's particularly true for the most sophisticated buyers. So what what do we put in place? And is there something we could put in place to combat that? Like what if there was a a financial penalty of some kind? Like you were still going to have to pay something. Yeah, of course, that that limits the protection. I mean, if it's 20 grand, people might be reluctant to walk away if they find a bit of water damage. So the financial penalty would weaken the benefit uh, to buyers of sort of... uh, you know, uh, realizing that they bought a lemon because, you know, it's still costly to do so. But yes, you're right. That would limit uh, the uh, upward pressure on prices that this will place. What about the idea of just making everybody have a a home inspection? Regardless, if you're going to put your house up for sale, you must have a home inspection. Well, I like that idea very much. And uh, I think uh, that would be great for both buyers uh, and sellers. Again, sellers could uh, be assigned, for example, rather than, you know, worrying that, oh, well, you know, you hired this guy, so he's going to say nothing's wrong. Just have a a list uh, that the realtors through the province maintain and whoever's turn it is, who's a certified inspector, does the inspection and everybody can share it. People would be free to do their own, but at least everybody would have access to uh, a professional inspection. Right. People have raised the point, though, to me saying, well, you know, with a home inspection, there's always a reason not to buy. Like, they're, they're always going to find something wrong. So is that really the way to go, too? Well, you could say everybody has to have a home inspection, but then not have this free look period. Oh, so you said there's a way to balance that out. 
Yeah, well, it's, I mean, the big issue, I think, is that people don't have the opportunity to kick the tires. If everybody has the opportunity to look at a professional inspection, I don't think you necessarily need the free walk away period. Now, there, there, you can write it into a contract. You can say, if I can't find financing, I'm allowed to walk away after a week or two. And mm-hmm. that's very common already. Right. Okay. So I guess the idea, though, here is really to kind of bring some sanity back to the market, right? So that you're not feeling like you're in this comp- this incredible competition, this Hunger Games thing to buy a house. Is this the way to do that? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I think what this does, again, is it protects a small number of buyers who have huge remorse after uh, paying, you know, feeling like a gun to their head during the bidding process. But the downside is it probably just makes the bidding process all the more intense. So this is not in any way a way to make housing more affordable. Affordability is a heavy lift. You know, we've got to do something with taxes and we've got to uh, do something with zoning and uh, speeding up approvals generally. But, you know, more homes and, uh, you know, that's sort of the way around the affordability problem. Right. So what do you think then of what the housing minister has been saying recently about, um, you know, essentially leaning on municipalities, forcing them to open up some supply, approve more projects? Well, as an economist, I absolutely love it because there's a giant free rider problem, right? The province tells municipalities, you're in charge of zoning. But each municipality has very little incentive to put in affordable housing. You know, suburbs like uh, West Vancouver, District of North Vancouver, they'd much rather the affordable housing go somewhere else rather than their own backyards. And so city councilors and mayors are under political pressure to say no to denser development. And so, you know, everybody wants affordable housing, but not in their community. So we have to have a higher level of government. Uh, use some combination of carrots and sticks to make sure municipalities uh, do what's right for all of us. Are, are you surprised that's still a thing? Like even this in this day and age, when we have this kind of labor shortage, where municipalities like that, you can't find enough workers to come in who want to work at the businesses are there because they can't live nearby, and yet we're still having this problem. Yeah, no, it doesn't really surprise me because I think people would rather look at trees and uh, open space than uh, their neighbor's windows. So. Uh, you know, as long as that's a human desire, I think uh, you're likely to see pretty restrictive zoning and people want low density near them. And that's not unreasonable uh, for at an individual level, but collectively we can't do it. We have to allow more affordable forms of housing. So there's a lot of blank spaces in this legislation that still have to be filled in. What would you tell them to fill that in with? How could this be better? Well, what I've said is I really like the idea of pushing on a shared um inspection, right? I mean, if you have 40 people bidding on a home, it doesn't make a lot of sense for each individual to spend the money to do an inspection because they're probably not going to get the property. But if there is an inspection, you know, people can be more confident in their bidding. So I would like to see that. Uh, Otherwise, you know, this free look, I don't have very strong feelings. I don't think it's a solution to uh, our problems in the housing market. But again, it may protect a small number of customers from really adverse outcomes. All right, we'll see what happens. Listen, thanks for your time this morning. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That's Thomas Davidoff, who's the director at the UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate, talking about this home buyer protection bill and what it means. The problem is we don't know exactly what it means yet because, yes, they brought it forward, but there's so many details that have yet to be filled in because now they're going to have a consultation process about, well, what would be a good cooling off period? Uh, should What kind of conditions should we allow? Should there be a financial penalty if you back out of the deal? How is all this going to work? That will happen over the next few months. But in the meantime, let's hear from you on this. Let's continue this conversation. Simi at cknw.com and you can, of course, always 
always use our buzz line 604-331-2899.